Let's pray. Father, uh, indeed, the truth of that song uh, is good. It's, it's good to realize that even in the midst of difficult times in our lives, and, and Lord, can't even imagine watching a, a good friend uh, or father drown, uh, God, to realize that you are in the midst of that, that you are in the midst of our lives, and that you remain sovereign and good and immutable it is indeed a comfort to our souls. So, Father, we want to wrestle today with some of the more difficult issues of our faith, some accusations that are made by an onlooking world uh, when it comes to the truthfulness of our faith. And, Lord, as we're going to see, it's nothing new. It's been going on for thousands of years now since the time people originally wrote the Bible. And so we pray, God, that you would give us keen minds and understanding hearts and that, Lord, more than anything, we walk out encouraged today as we uh, take a bold look at your truth. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I uh, mentioned earlier, probably one of the most common accusations or arguments against Christianity is that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories, myths formulated over the years and now put together in one big book that has about as much fact behind it as Grimm's fairy tales. Uh, Richard Dawkins is probably the foremost proponent of this view today. He's an outspoken atheist and author of the book, The God Delusion. And, and he's probably one of the ones that many of you have heard of in our modern day world talk about this idea that the Bible is just a bunch of myths. His book hit the New York Times bestseller list last year, and he's been interviewed on PBS and in multiple places. And uh, about a year ago, a movie came out that was a documentary by Ben Stein called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. And in this movie, this documentary, he went around interviewing people who are kind of against the, the Christian Judeo uh, faith and, and just uh, wanted to hear their arguments and respond to them. And so I want you to look up here on the screen and listen to how Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, presents his charge against the Christian faith. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. How are you? Fine, thank you. You have... Uh, you have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us <laughs> what you said. Please tell us what um, you said. I, well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. How about, how about if people believed in a God of infinite lovingness and kindness and forgiveness and generosity, sort of like the modern-day God? Why spoil it for them? Oh, um... Why not just let them have their fun I'm and enjoy happy. it? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. I, I write a book. People can read it if, if they want to. Um, I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstition. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I, I think it is, yes. So you don't believe in any god anywhere? Any god anywhere would be completely incompatible with, 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 with anything that I've said. In, I, in, I assume. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure you don't okay. believe in any God anywhere. No. What if you, if after you died, you ran into God? He said, what have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yeah. I gave you a multi-million dollar paycheck yeah. over and over again with your book, and look what you did. 
Bertrand Russell was, had that point put to him, and he said um, something like, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? It's been an accusation against Christians and Jews for thousands of years now that the Bible is not a factual book about God, but the opposite, just a bunch of made-up stories and myths. And as I mentioned earlier, folks, this is not a new accusation against Christianity. Every generation since the time of Christ, and even before the time of Christ, has had to answer this charge. In fact, as we're going to see, even the New Testament writers who are building upon the Old Testament heard this accusation in their day and age. I mean, as soon as the ink was dry on the page, that what they were writing was just a bunch of made-up stories. And so the question that I need you and I to wrestle with is how do we respond to that? What's the answer when people say to you and I that the Bible is just a bunch of myths? The good news is, is that the Bible is going to answer that today. As we continue on our look of Second Peter, he's going to give us some thoughts about this subject. And not understand this, I need to show you a picture. When I was in Israel last March, one of the most fascinating cities we visited was the ancient Roman city of Beit Sha'an, just south of Galilee. It's not a city that holds any direct biblical significance like Nazareth or Capernaum or Jerusalem, but it's a fascinating city nonetheless, 2,000 years old, that shows the incredible ingenuity and advances of the Roman culture during the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, so, for instance, it has the famous Roman road in it. You can see it going through the center of the city there, 2,000 years old. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we redo roads in America about once every four or five years, right? And, and they made roads back then that last 2,000 years. In addition to that, as you walk through the city, you see Roman bathhouses and stadiums and intricate mosaic patterns. I mean, all preserved in some form after hundreds and hundreds of years. And yet what blew me away the most, give me another click here, guys, were the pillars. The pillars. The fact that the pillars, which once held up the fallen and destroyed buildings, were still intact after 2,000 years. I mean, granted, these pillars might have been fallen over the years and now have been pushed up by archaeologists who are reconstructing the city, but the fact that the pillars still existed after two millennium, the fact that they could still be used as support structures is at the very least an incredible credit to the Roman architecture. It was an amazing sight to see pillars that can survive thousands of years of onslaught, of decay, and of exposure to all kinds of opposing forces. Get that mental image in your mind. Pillars holding up what supports them all down through the ages. And so with this idea in mind, what I want you to consider in our time remaining this morning is two timeless pillar answers that Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, gives us in response to this every generation charge that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to turn in the, your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. We're going to be starting up through verse 21. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 21. And as you're turning there, the context of this passage is that a charge has been leveled at Peter and the other writers of the New Testament that what they were writing was mythical in nature. No different than Homer's Odyssey or the other mythical stories about Greek gods at that time. Again, as I said earlier, this is not a new charge leveled at Christians that were following a bunch of fairy tales. And so Peter is going to answer this charge. And in doing so, he gives us one overall challenge supported by two very hard to knock down pillars. 
I've listed the challenge that Peter gives us on your outline there this morning. It's challenge number five as we make our way through this short letter. And here it is. And that is that he tells us to not dismiss the historical and intellectual underpinnings of our faith. Don't dismiss the historical and intellectual underpinnings of your faith. In other words, the faith that you and I have in Jesus Christ has some historical and intellectual grit to it. It has some teeth. It has a solid foundation, or using the image we just looked at, it rests on a number of pillars that are more than capable of standing the test of time and supporting the structure of our faith and activity. That's what Peter is pointing out here. And so the first pillar that Peter mentions is this, and that is that the New Testament claims about Jesus are historically based eyewitness claims. They are historically based eyewitness claims. That's the first pillar. And so look at how Peter establishes this. Look at verses 16 to 18 of 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so don't miss, folks, what Peter is making very clear here. And that is simply that they saw, heard, and experienced Jesus. Get that in your mind. This is the first pillar, that they saw, heard, and experienced Jesus. He says there in verse 16, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now that word eyewitness here is the Greek word epoptai, and it literally means to have first-hand acquaintance with something, to be a watchful observer. It carries with it the idea that you visibly and have physically viewed what you are claiming. And so in Peter's day, the great philosopher Aristotle had established a few hundred years earlier that eyewitness testimony was needed to verify, and I quote, whether a thing had occurred or not occurred. And so what Peter is saying here is that his eyewitness testimony verifies what he is saying has occurred. In other words, he's living by the rules of his day when it comes to historical verifiability. And notice that Peter says further, we. Don't miss that. We were eyewitnesses, meaning more than one. And so John, Matthew, and Paul would also write in their New Testament writings about being eyewitnesses as well. He's saying we saw all of this. And as if this were not enough, Peter then goes on to clarify even more by saying in verse 17 that we also heard. Do you see that there in verse 17? We ourselves heard. But we'll get to what Peter heard in just a minute. But simply note now that Peter is not limiting his factual testimony to only one of his five sentences, but he's broadening it to two, that of hearing. So he says, we didn't just see what we're claiming about Jesus, but we heard some things as well. I like how Peter Davids, who's one of the foremost experts alive today in the book of Second Peter, points out. He says, Peter is now dealing with, and I quote, matters of fact. He says he's speaking to the veracity of the witness that he heard him as well. And then notice, folks, that Peter includes a, includes a third sensory observation to his factual testimony. He says there in verse 19, and we were with him. We were with him. In other words, we experienced his presence. We touched him. It's a tactile thing. We talked with him. We interacted with him. So it would be no different than if you and I today were to meet somebody, say, really famous, like 
Dr. Daryl Dohuse from Phoenix Seminary. Have you ever met him? President of Phoenix Seminary. So if you met him and then somebody later said, really, you met Dr. Daryl? Is he real? What would you say? You'd say, of course he's real. I've talked to him. I've shaken his hand. I've heard his corny jokes over the years. Yes, he is real. I know him. I can verify that to you. That's exactly what Peter is getting at here. He's saying they'd been with Jesus, experienced him tangibly and physically. Don't miss this, folks. Peter couldn't be more clear. He is saying that he and others saw, heard, and experienced both God and Jesus. And by saying this, they are establishing an historical, intellectual foundation, a pillar to support all the truths that flow out of this. Eyewitness, historically-based testimony. And so what is it, then, that they saw, heard, and experienced? Well, though we can assume that all of what Peter claims here about Jesus falls under this seeing, hearing, experiencing testimony, in the immediate context here, it's interesting that he's referring to one particular event, what we commonly call the transfiguration of Jesus. He's taking us back to the transfiguration. All three of the synoptic gospel, writer, gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wrote about this idea of the transfiguration. You might remember the story. Jesus took John, Peter, and James up alone to a mountain. And as the account goes, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face became as bright as the sun and his clothes were like as white as light to the point where they almost couldn't recognize him. And then as if that were not enough, Moses and Elijah, like yes, dead Moses and dead Elijah from 800 to 1500 years before, appeared and were talking with Jesus. And then it all bloomed away as the voice of God came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And this was so real that Matthew tells us in his retelling of this account that the three disciples, and I quote, fell on their faces and were terrified. So you can read about it in Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke chapter 9. And what Peter's simply telling you and I here is that it really happened. He's saying, I was there. And so were John and James. And we saw, heard, and experienced this transfiguration of Jesus, the presence of Moses and Elijah, and even the voice of God revealing Jesus' divine status. Now, don't let this escape you, folks. He is saying that he's right, what he's writing about is an historically-based eyewitness account, and so our faith has historical and intellectual underpinnings. And the point is, once you get up to this point, it's simply that you can believe Peter or you cannot believe Peter. Amen? I mean, you can trust that what he is saying is true and align your lives with the realities that flow from this as people have now for 2,000 years, or you can choose to call him a liar or think that he's massively deceived and reject what he says is untrue. But get this, what you can't do is love with a claim that there is no historical veracity or intellectual credibility to what he is claiming because he's followed all of the rules of his day of giving credible testimony to what he has seen, heard, and experienced. I mean, as one expert once said a while back, he said, if you dismiss the New Testament documents as having no historical verifiability or credibility, you might as well dismiss every other document of antiquity from that time. Because the reality is, is that they stand up to the evidence of what we know from documents of antiquity. And so as you evaluate for yourself with, what, whether, with whether what Peter and James and John and Paul are saying is true, what you might want to remember is that these very simple, 
high-integrity, law-abiding Jewish men would go on to give their lives for what they claim they witness. One of the things we know in studying historical documents is that we look at the character of the person writing them. I mean, let's all be realistic. There have been plenty of things written from history that were just downright lies, things that were meant to deceive people. And so it would not be an unfounded claim to say, well, an historical document might not be true because, you know, hey, the person could be lying. But the way that you tell if somebody is lying is twofold. One, you compare it to other historical documents to see if there is agreement. New Testament agrees. The second thing you do is you look at the character of the person who is writing it. And it's fascinating. When you look at the character of the New Testament writers, they all would go on to die and live terrible lives from their previously normal and mundane lives for what they wrote. I mean, they were ridiculed. They were put in prison. They were tortured. They lost family and friends. They would eventually die brutal deaths like being beheaded or crucified. And all the while, all they had to do was recant. I mean, all they had to do was admit some slight embellishment or mere hyperbole, and yet none of them did. To their dying day, they held fast to their testimony that what they were saying was historically factual and true. I mean, let's be honest. If you or I witnessed something incredibly profound on this earth today and wrote about it, but then realized that what we had written would have radical countercultural implications and would cost us our job, money, friends, and even our lives, we'd be very tempted to at the very least shut up about it and bow out gracefully, wouldn't we? It happens all the time. People write something, they receive a lot of heat for what they write, and they go, well, I didn't really mean that. You know, and just sort of leave me alone, you know, about it. I mean, it happens all the time, whether in a newspaper or, or what have you. The reality is, is to take the heat these men did. I, I mean, you got to ask yourself, what kind of motive would they have for holding so tenaciously to their claim? Would they really die for a lie? For a bunch of made-up stories with no factual or historical content? Were they just that deceived? These normal, run-of-the-mill fishermen who led exemplary lives before they met Jesus? I mean, when you look honestly at it, folks, it just doesn't add up. I mean, Peter is saying the only way it does add up is to consider that they're telling the truth, that Jesus really did exist, that he really did claim to be the Son of God, God come in the flesh, that he really did perform miracles, live a perfect and sinless life, teach all that he taught, that he really did die on a wooden cross for our sins and then literally rise from the dead. And then, as Paul the Apostle would say, that Jesus, and I quote, then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. You know, we know and have evidence there are people that have hallucinations this side of heaven, right? For various reasons, mental illness, drugs, lots of things can cause hallucinations. We have no record, no evidence at all of 500 people having the same hallucination at one time. Never happened in the history of the world. So if this is a hallucination, if this is some type of manipulation, first time in the history of the world that it's ever happened. I mean, it just doesn't seem plausible. In short, I love how Dr. Clark Pinnock, a PhD from Manchester University in England and a longtime professor at McMaster Divinity College in Canada says it in talking about the New Testament documents. You've got to wrestle with this, folks. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, There exists no document from the ancient world witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies and offering so superb an array of historical data on which an intelligent decision may be made. 
He says an honest person cannot dismiss a source of this kind. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. And I think he's right. And so here's the deal, folks. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, take great encouragement. Because Peter is telling us that our faith is grounded in reality. Historical, verifiable reality. And if you're someone, however, who's honestly seeking Christ here today, and by the way, we're so glad that you're here. We believe that Scottsdale Bible is a safe place to investigate the claims of Christ. I would encourage you to wrestle with the truth claims that the Bible makes because their self-attestation is one of intellectual and historical credibility. And when you consider the source, it's hard to deny the claim. Well, when you look at the lives of the people that wrote this, I mean, it's hard to argue that they sincerely believed what they were saying was true and that just maybe then what they're saying is true and it could have profound implications for our lives. Now, as if all of this were not enough, Peter goes on to mention a second strong pillar of our faith in Christ, and it's this, and that is that the Old Testament prophecies then are further evidence of God's truth and activity. And so you got the New Testament documents, which Peter's claiming are eyewitness testimonies. We were there kind of things. But then in looking back on the Old Testament, he says, oh, and by the way, you got all these Old Testament prophecies. We'll see what he means in a minute here. That happened hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And in Jesus, many of them, if not all of them, came true or are going to come true to second coming. And so these are evidence of God's truth. Look at how Peter goes on to say this in verses 19 to 21 of our text this morning. He says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so simply put, he's saying that all the Old Testament prophecies, which are simply claims that the Old Testament makes that would eventually come true in Jesus' life or even after that as the end of time eventually comes, Peter is saying that these are further proof of the historical and intellectual underpinnings of our faith in Christ and that we should take great confidence in these things. And so what kinds of things are you talk- is he talking about, you might be asking? I want to show you some examples of some prophecies here that are going to kind of blow you away. And to do this, I need to introduce you to a great defender of the faith today, Josh McDowell. Look up here on the screen. Many of you know who Josh McDowell is. He's probably one of the strongest advocates for Christianity alive today. We just had him here doing a seminar for a day and a half at our church And as many of you know, Josh McDowell set out about 30, 40 years ago as a young man to discredit Christianity. He actually set out to intellectually disprove what he heard many Christians saying because it was driving him nuts about the truth claims that they made. And about halfway through gathering the evidence to disprove Christianity, an odd thing happened, and that is that he became convinced of its truthfulness. In other words, as he looked at the evidence, he said, oh my gosh, this thing really is true. Kind of like C.S. Lewis, who once wrote that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God because he realized how true it was. He just didn't want to bend his will to God. That's where many people are today. So that's where Josh McDowell got. And as a result of this, he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Some of you have read it. 
And then a few years later wrote even another book called More Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's now in one huge 750-page book entitled New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it's a very lengthy, very detailed compilation of evidence that talks about Everything from how we got our current Bible to arguments for and against the existence of God to philosophical discussions on truth, even to the many modern-day arguments like the ones Richard Dawkins gives against Christianity. And at one point in his research, he points out and talks about all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus. Prophecies that we know were written hundreds of years before Jesus showed up on the scene, and yet they came true in the life and ministry of Jesus. And according to McDowell, get this, there are no less than 61 specific Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus of which each and every one of them came true during Jesus' lifetime. And so what are we talking about? Well, look up here on the screen. For instance, Isaiah 7 verse 14 talks about the fact that there's going to be a virgin birth. That was written about six, 700 years before the time of Christ. Matthew tells us in his gospel that Jesus was born of a virgin. Genesis 49.10, Isaiah 11.1, 1, Jeremiah 23.5 say that this guy, this Messiah, is going to come from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of Jesse, and the house of David. Fascinating. Luke 3 cites that he came from the tribe of Judah, lineage of Jesse, the house of David. That's what he was born under. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. 500 years later, Matthew tells us he was born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31.15 says that during the time of the Messiah's birth, there is going to be a mass infanticide. A bunch of infants are going to be killed, and you're going to hear weeping from the mothers. Fascinating. During Jesus' birth, Herod committed a massive infanticide, and we heard, they heard the weeping. And folks, you need to remember that just these few examples that I've given you here is a period of time between 400 and 1,500 years that they were written before they came true in Jesus. And I know how some of you think, because you think like me, you're thinking, well, these could just be coincidence, Jamie. Or maybe some guy in the first century tried to manipulate Jesus' circumstances to try to fit the Old Testament prophetic evidence. I mean, couldn't that happen? Well, reasonably speaking, it's possible. But, but here's what you need to consider, folks. And that is that at some point in the chain of 61 individual prophecies being fulfilled, you have to ask yourself, is this really coincidence or could it be God? I mean, is this really just men messing with the Bible predictions or could there be truth to all of this? And be rational, be reasonable about it. Because if you're at all interested in this, you need to look these things up. Get a good Thompson Chain Reference Bible or buy McDowell's book. Look each one of these up yourselves, and you'll ask yourself, could this really be coincidence? I don't think so. I mean, in continuing our list more quickly, let me blow your mind. It says in the Psalms that the Messiah would be presented with gifts at his birth. The wise men brought gifts to Jesus. It says in Deuteronomy that the Messiah would be known as a prophet, and Jesus was. It says in the Psalms he'd be known as a priest, and the book of Hebrews calls him a priest. It says in the Psalms that the Messiah would be hailed as a long-awaited king, and the crowds called him a king. The Old Testament says that he would be preceded by a messenger, and John the Baptist came. It said that he'd do the bulk of his work in Galilee, and he did. It says that he'd perform lots of miracles, and he did. It said that he would teach in parables, short stories with a meaning, and he told more than 40 of them. I mean, even very specific, hard-to-control and manipulate prophecies came true in Jesus. Like the one that says he would ride into Jerusalem on a colt, a young donkey. Jesus did. 
Or that he was going to be betrayed by a very close friend and even sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11:12 prophesied this. And Judas did both of these things. Or how about when Jesus was hanging on the cross, which is, was itself a fulfillment of prophecy. And the Old Testament says that they would cast lots and divide his garments for money. And now the soldiers that did this, because we know it happened, had absolutely no interest in seeing prophecy fulfilled. Would we all agree with that? I mean, they couldn't be manipulated, and yet that's exactly what they did. And folks, there's dozens of these things. That's why Peter says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention to. Why? Because these Old Testament prophecies do nothing but give us further evidence of God's truth and activity in our lives. In fact, I love how Peter says that he says these things weren't produced by the will of man. In other words, they weren't a bunch of made-up religious zealots looking to control the masses. But they actually came from God. As Peter says, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's fascinating. Only a guy who, who, who loves to study the Bible in depth like I do might appreciate this, but in the original language, or in the English language there where it says no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. See that phrase, ever produced? And then it says no, but they were, they were spoke by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That phrase, ever produced, and then carried along is actually the same Greek word in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. It's just that one's in the negative and one's in the positive. And Peter's using a play on words there. He's saying, no way, these things didn't come from men. These things came from God. And so the question becomes, what are we to do with all this? I mean, you and I are about to go to the communion table where for 2,000 years Christians have boldly celebrated the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And so the question I need us to wrap up with is how do Peter's words affect all of this? And if you're a believer here today, here's the encouragement I want to give you. And that is to live confidently. I mean, partake communion confidently that your faith in Jesus Christ is not like the Titanic. Do you remember that movie, The Titanic? The ship that could never sink. A big institutionalized ship that was just waiting for the next iceberg to take it down. The accusation of guys like Richard Dawkins and others today is that our faith is like the Titanic. It's this big institutional faith, and it's going to hit an iceberg one of these days. Some historical data is going to come up or some archaeological evidence that we weren't waiting for, and it's always going to show that, that all we're living is a lie. Guess what? For 2,000 years, that's not happened. And the likelihood of it happening, well, I believe is nil because it's just not going to happen. The reality is, is what the scriptures are bearing witness to, which you're to grab onto by faith, but with lots of historical validation behind it, is that your faith is not like the Titanic. It's not going to hit some unseen iceberg. No, it's a lot more solid than that. Believer, take confidence today that, that your faith is not in vain. Live confidently. Eat and drink from this table confidently. And if you're a seeker here today, as I mentioned earlier, man, I'm so thrilled that you're here I got to tell you, I spent the first half of my life as a seeker. Didn't go to church very often, didn't believe in God very much. I mean, I was very much like many people in this world today. But at one point, I started seeking the truth claims of Christianity. And I'm glad we live in a day and age today where there's a renewed interest in spiritual truth, and this is good. But if you're a seeker here today, can I encourage you to seek reasonably 
and with an open mind and an open heart and remember that Dan Brown novels are just what they are. They're novels. I mean, really, I love reading novels. I've read Clive Cussler and Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy and, and uh, you know, John Grisham. I love reading novels. It's my mental escape. And I liked reading Dan Brown novels, by the way. I thought they were interesting. They kept my attention. They were kind of fun. Saw the movie even. Thought that was pretty good with Tom Hanks. And as a theologian, as somebody who studied history, I laughed when I read it. And I thought, this is an like, incredible story. Just didn't happen. There's no historical verifiability at all to what Dan Brown writes about. He's just angry at the Catholic Church. And the reality is, he said it's okay to be angry at the church. The church has hurt lots of people. The church has hurt me at times. But listen closely, Seeker. The church, being angry at the church or angry at other Christians doesn't mean that you should direct that anger to God himself. God is capable of standing on his own. Did you know that? When Jesus came here, he actually distanced himself from the religious leaders of his day. It's kind of embarrassing for me as a pastor. But if I was a pastor back then, Jesus would have been like, hey, you know, you stand over there, I'll stand over here. All right? Because I'm really embarrassed by what you're doing. And so I want to tell people who God really is. That was the ministry of Jesus. Is that not so cool? And I think if Jesus came today, he might do something similar. He might look at some of the goofy things Christians are doing and go, you guys stand over there. I'm going to stand over here and deal with these tax collectors and sinners that need to know about me. That's what Jesus did. And the reality is, if you're a seeker here today, look at the claims of Jesus and look at them with an open mind and an open heart and ask yourself what Francis Schaeffer challenged his generation to last century. Francis Schaeffer was a guy who developed a think tank in Switzerland called Labrie which dealt with all those hippies going across uh, Europe in the 60s trying to find themselves, you know. Labrie would, would find them, and, and he'd help them find Jesus. And at one point, he basically said to this thing, he said, he said, apply two tests to any worldview that you confront, and that is the test of rationality and the test of livability. He said, ask yourself, in any worldview that you confront, is it rational? In other words, does it make sense? And is it livable? Does it work? And he then would put a Bible in people's hands and say, I've yet to find any truth claim like Christianity that is both rational and livable at the same time. And that's my challenge to you today, is that as you seek the Lord, ask yourself, does it make sense? Does it make sense that he calls me a sinner? Do I wake up each day and realize that I'm fallen and I'm probably going to make mistakes today? Does that seem to make sense? Or should I believe my world that tells me that I'm basically good? That, that everything's kosher inside and that I'm just fine. I mean, really, which makes more sense? I think it makes more sense that I'm a sinner. I know me, and I'm a pretty good guy. Does it make sense that I need forgiveness from Jesus? That I need forgiveness because I've offended God and that he came with grace and kindness and goodness inside of him to bring forgiveness to me? Does that seem to make sense? Yeah, that seems to make sense to me. And does it make sense that if God really made me and loves me, that he wants control of my life? that my life is to be him, that he's to be first in all that I do. Yeah, that seems to make sense. And you know what's so cool? At least after 25 years, I found it livable. And so have many of you. In fact, you found it more than livable. You found it what Jesus said it to be, and that is that you have found it to bring joy unspeakable to your hearts, springs of living water flowing out of you. I'm not trying to overstate the case. Life is still hard. We sung a great song written by a gal whose father died right before her eyes. Life is very hard. This is a brutal world we live in. But Jesus came to this brutal world, died so that we might be forgiven, died so that we might come to God and find the joy and peace that he talked about. And it's real. It's there. And that's what this table's all about. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your word, in the Bible, you give us cogent, reasonable, understandable truth 
that we can then live. And Father, I know that there are plenty of arguments against the case, but Lord, when we slow down and take a look at each one of them one by one, we find that, at least I have found at the end of the day, that there's some pretty strong pillars supporting our case. And Father, I thank you that uh, indeed you came to this earth rooted in history and that you taught the things that you taught and that you brought us to you. So Lord, we want to go to this table now, a table in which we celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was given for us so that we might have new life. And so Lord, may this be a, a worshipful time indeed as we give honor and praise to you. And Lord, for anybody that might be seeking you here today, I pray that if they are ready, that they might believe right where they sit. They believe and trust in you and your son Jesus. And that they might realize through believing, through bending the knee to you and honoring you as Christ and Lord, that they have eternal life and that they have life that starts now as well. And may they then take these elements with full assurance of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.